John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. Everybody and welcome back. Before we get into the episode, just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast, and all that means is that we are way behind where I'm at in Patreon. So if you are loving this podcast and you need more John Constantine in your life, definitely go check us out at patreon.com/slash planes, trains, and comic books and sign up for the Hellblazer tier, where you'll get access to the entire Hellblazer library that I've recorded so far. And also you get access to the exclusive episodes of the Planes, Trains, and Comic Books main podcast. So if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Today we are reading Hellblazer number 44. But before we get into that, just a little recap of what's been going on. John Constantine has terminal lung cancer. The doctors have said he can't do anything about it. He tried to visit one of his magical friends, and uh, that guy couldn't help him with anything either. So he's kind of at his wit's end. He's not sure what he's going to do, uh, but he has decided, like, wait, I can I can come up with something. I got to figure something out. So that is where we're at in the story. So first things first with issue 44, we see the cover here. We see we are in a cemetery. There's different kinds of gravestones. One of them is like a big Celtic cross with a, a skull in the middle of it, so that's kind of a weird... <laughs> creepy uh, gravestone to have and then we see another cut in of John Constantine's face surrounded by a really bright color and that's been a motif of uh, all these different covers for this new Garth Ennis run that we've been reading and we do see on the cover that this is written by Garth Ennis with art by Will Simpson and Tom Sutton and we start off on the first page with John Constantine in a cemetery uh, he is looking pretty bad he's looking very very skinny and gaunt his face is kind of sunken in, and he's just not looking too good. And he is at this cemetery to visit the grave of his mom. That's what he's staying in front of, but I think his dad's grave is also here. We see the narration says, It's going to be soon. A couple days at the most from the way I keep getting the shakes. I can't even open a cigarette packet. And then John tries to open up his cigarettes, and we see he's fumbling with it. And eventually he does get it open, but it is empty. And of course this is ironic because John's dying of lung cancer, and he can't even open a box of cigarettes now. And because he's standing in front of his parents' graves, he's thinking about what his dad would say about this moment right now. And the narration continues, You enjoyed that, didn't you? You'll be laughing your bollocks off at me right this minute. I've been trying not to think about it, where he said you were. I know how much you loved him, Mom. Cheryl didn't need to explain it. I'd like to think you're with her now, wherever she is. Well then, Dad, here we are. I've spent a fortnight planning, checking, and double-checking, and there's no getting away from it. This is the only way left for me. And we don't know what that way is. He has not revealed what his new plan is to get out of this. But we do see that this issue is called My Way. So it's definitely him doing it his own way. And then we cut to John in a different location. He's walking in front of a residential brick building. And the narration says, I never meant to do that. I'm supposed to be in Liverpool to say goodbye to Cheryl and Gemma. But Christ, this is my last day here and I thought... What the hell? Let's go be a prat in a graveyard. Oh, well. And we see John enter a residence. And as he does, he says hi to his sister, Cheryl. And she calls him into the kitchen. And we get from the interaction here between them that 
John has been staying with them, but she doesn't know that he's sick at all. She's commenting that he's wearing a jacket in the middle of May, and that doesn't make any sense. And he's saying, oh, it's probably just the flu. And then she goes over to him and says, well, actually, I've been meaning to say, you're a bit pale. We heard you coughing last night. It's nothing serious, is it? And John says, nah, well, nothing a cup of tea wouldn't help. So Cheryl begins to make them some tea, and uh, she says to John that it's been really nice having him there the last couple of days, and she wishes he would come up more often. And she specifically says that Gemma really needs an uncle right now. And John uses this moment to poke fun at her husband because John's never liked him ever since the beginning of this series. So John says, this wouldn't be because her dad spends most of his time on Valium after a hard day's work screwing caps onto toothpaste tubes, would it? And Cheryl gives him like a very stern, you better watch yourself, mister, like look on her face. And then she tells him to back off about her husband because that job was the best thing he could find. And then John goes back to talking about Gemma. He says, yeah, I know. Look, sis, about Gemma. She's going to have to cope without me from now on, okay? I won't be back. I'm sorry. And then Cheryl sits down and she says, I see. This has something to do with what you do, hasn't it? I never really thought about it before, but that must be it. I remember when you were growing up and all those weird books you had full of stuff about these things. I don't want to know too much, John. You're probably into a lot of stuff people like me aren't meant to know about. But I've always known this. You're not really like the rest of us, are you? You're involved in, well, in... And then John interjects, Don't be afraid of it, Cheryl. Call it whatever you want. Magic, the supernaturals, demons. You pick one. It relies on fear, love. If you're not scared of it, it can't hurt you. And then John stands up and walks over to Cheryl and he says, Shit, you want to know about magic, sis? I'll give you the secret of magic. Magic is a load of sodding bollocks. And then she stands up and he gives her a big hug and they're both kind of crying. And he says, what matters is the rest of you who don't know the weird crap, who just know life. You're right, you know, I've been mixed up in it for a long time and now I'm in over my head. I've got to go, sis. You'll have to say goodbye to Gemma for me because I don't think I'm up to it. Bloody coward running away. And Cheryl says, no, John, you're all right. And then he pulls away and he looks at her straight and he says, Thanks. Take care of Gemma now, okay? She'll go far, that one. Goodbye, Cheryl. And then he gives her a kiss on the forehead, and she says, Goodbye, John. And she gives him another hug. Then John leaves Liverpool and takes the train all the way back to London, and he's not really happy to be here. It seems maybe after he was on his journeys with Zed and Mercury that London and this city just doesn't do anything for him anymore. The narration says, I moved down here when I was 17, lured by the big city lights. Ended up staying mired in the shit. Too lazy to move on. London does that to you. But then he looks up and he sees his buddy Chaz, who we haven't seen for a while in this comic. And the narration says, Oh, that's a bit harsh. It's not all bad. He's right on time. And his buddy Chaz looks ecstatic to see John. Very happy. He's got a big grin on his face. And he says, All right. And John answers him, Bloody awful, Chaz. You got the cab? And Chaz answers, Yeah, Christ, John. You look like shit, mate. And John replies to that, I know, but I'll be okay with you to cheer me up. Where you're parked. And as they get to Chaz's car, we see that it is not the normal black cab that he usually drives. It is a green Mini Cooper. And John makes fun of it saying, Jesus, I've heard of mini cabs, but this is ridiculous. And at this, Chaz gets all bitter and he says, yeah, well, 
You might remember I sold the real one and blew all the money after a piece of dodgy advice from a certain someone. And what he's talking about there is, if you remember during the Fear Machine story arc, Chaz gave John a ride to Scotland, and when they got there, John told Chaz that the end of the world was happening and cabs aren't going to be much use during the apocalypse, so we might as well sell it and uh, have some fun with that money before the end of the world occurs. So as they drive away, John says, oh yeah, sorry about that. And Chaz proceeds to tell John how he got this car, and he says, I had to get a loan off Mike Adams to even afford this load of shit. And John doesn't like the sound of that. He says, Mike Adams? He's a nutter, Chaz. And Chaz says, yeah, but he didn't tell me to piss off like the bloke down the Halifax, did he? And John gets all serious and he says, no, I'm sure he didn't. In fact, I bet old Mike was so pleased to see you, he set the interest at 50% and told you the first installment was due at the end of the month, right? You know, the last bloke who fell behind on payments to Adams when swimming in the cement mixer, Chaz, have you gone mad? And at this, Chaz blows up. He says, oh, piss off. Always the same. Every bloody time. When you're not scrounging lifts and stuff, you're bossing me about like I'm a friggin' two-year-old. It's because of you I had to go to Adams. You nearly had me bloody bankrupt, you wanker. And John doesn't get mad at this. He just stares at him, kind of like a disappointed parent. And, uh, and he says, yeah, fair enough. My flat's not far now anyway. I'll get out here. Thanks for the lift. So basically, he's making Chaz feel all guilty about yelling at him. And if that wasn't bad enough, as John leaves, Chaz says, bastard. And then he looks down and he sees a note that John has left on his seat. And it's full of money as he opens it up. And he's like, bugger me. And then the note says, Chaz. Liverpool bookies obviously haven't been warned about me. This lot should get you a new cab and pay you off for all those favors you've done for me. I've never really liked stringing you along, telling you that you owed me. I've done too much of that in my life to too many people. I'm squaring you up now because I won't see you again. I've finally pissed off one bastard too many, and I don't think I'll be sliding out of this one. Pity, really. Anyway, I'm writing this on the train from Liverpool because I'd feel like a prat saying it to your face. But it's been great knowing you, Chaz, and I'm proud to call you my mate. I'm glad we're parting as friends. Chin up, son. John. So it's almost if John knew that, that they were going to have this big fight because this is just one last jab at Chaz. Now Chaz, of course, feels terrible when he's crying in his car. And John gets to look like the hero or the good guy, even though he's fucked up Chaz's life the entire time. So he goes back to his flats and we see that he's on his bed reading some magic books and the narration says... Not long after I leave Chaz, I get sick, and then I stagger on home. I know it with the cold certainty of a man condemned to hang. Tonight, the cancer will kill me. Tonight, I die. And we see that the magical book he's reading is called The Grimoire Varium, and apparently it used to belong to his old buddy named Benjamin Cox. And he was one of the guys that died in the Swamp Thing run of Alan Moore. We also see that he gets some kind of box of something, we're not sure what it is, but he takes it and he gets dressed and he leaves. And we see on the next page that he went to go visit his buddy Matt in the terminal cancer ward in the hospital. And they're telling morbid jokes to each other. Matt specifically is laughing about how he would like his last moments to be. He says, there I'd be, spitting up blood all over the place, crapping myself, old ticker finally giving out, all the doctors trying to save me, and along comes Sister Morgan there, and she's all ready to help, and she steps in the blood or sick or something and goes skating across the floor. And John says, you're one sick bastard, you know that? A chat with you and the cardiac arrest begins to sound like a Monty Python sketch. 
And Matt laughs at this, but then he gets really serious and he says, Well, I don't like the old bitch, do I? You see, after I came in here, I got this really bad problem. I couldn't take a shit anymore without it hurting buggery, see? It felt as if I was crapping out bloody Big Ben. And along comes the doctor, and he prescribes laxative. Then Sister Morgan turns up and says, Oh no, doctor, I suspect something serious. A closer look at Mr. Higgins' workings is in order. So I'm still telling her, no thank you. Mr. Higgins is only constipated and would prefer the laxatives when they wheel in this mad-looking contraption. Then they shove this bloody tube up me arsehole. Turns out it's a sodding camera. They take pictures of my ring piece, would you believe? And then John asks, and what'd they find? Constipation? What was it? And then Matt says, bowel cancer. And then John busts out laughing and says, God almighty. I'm supposed to be saying goodbye to you, and all I can do is be your straight man. And Matt picks up on that and he says, Here, hold on. What do you mean saying goodbye? What are you on about? And then John answers, Well, just that really. I'm going to be, well, I won't be back. I'm sorry. And then Matt looks at him with a smile and says, Listen, son, you don't have to say you're sorry to me. You came to see me and brought me stuff and talked to me. You don't owe me any apologies. And then with great effort, he gets out of bed and he stands up and he says, I wanted to do this on my feet, son. Goodbye now, John. And he reaches out and he shakes John's hand and John says, bye, Matt. Take care. And then Matt gives him a real nice smile and says, yeah, look, don't ever be sorry, son. Regrets aren't worth a bugger. I'll see you. And then John leaves the hospital, possibly for the last time. And he takes the train. I think it's to Buckingham Palace where Big Ben is. And before he dies, because he says he only has about three hours left, he wants to give them a last piece of his mind. And as he stares at Big Ben, the narration says, I want you to know it was always about you, not the magic or the demons or anything. You. Your powers are just like magic. Because it doesn't exist unless enough people believe in it. In a way, that's what I've been fighting all these years. Just belief. All I ever wanted was for the world to be free of your kind. Whether you were here or in parliaments or in a senate or a junta or hell or heaven, maybe that's pointless then. Maybe the people are too small and scared to be free. Maybe they want you to be there shitting all over them. But like a salesman who's only too eager to sew up his market and stitch up his customers, you're happy enough to exploit that. Ah, sod it. Sod you. For whatever it's worth, you were always the enemy. So you can listen to what I have to say. Matt was right. I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And then he takes one last sobering look at Big Ben and he walks away. And we see him walking through London and we're not sure where he's going, but eventually we find out he's going back to his original flat that he had at the very beginning of this series. And if you remember, I believe it was within the first 12 issues, a demon killed everybody that lived in his flat house. So like all his neighbors and the owner of the building, they were all murdered. And that's originally why John went on the run and went up to Scotland where he met uh, Mercury and Marge and the whole pagan nation thing with the fear machine story arc. So as he walks in, the narration says, it might just be nostalgia, but I figure I'd do it on familiar ground. It's good to know the territory in this kind of thing. Last time I was here, this place was like a butcher shop. It's been a few years now but I can still remember the corpse sliding slowly down the spikes and Miss McGuire's head gazing at me with sockets full of demon's piss. And he checks the front door. It's not locked or anything. So he walks in and he notices it's completely empty still. And the narration continues. No squatters. I'm not surprised. You could never live here. 
the evil still echoing around, just waiting for someone to pick up on it. If you tried something like dropping acid in here, you'd be hot-wired into a world full of shit. It should do the trick, sure enough. No one's coming in, and no one can see in. It's funny to think I used to live here. The place has gone to the dogs. Then we see John go to his old flat in this apartment complex, and he begins to set up a pentagram on the floor and some candles on each of the points of that pentagram. And the narration says, most of this is a fairly basic sort of affair. The summonings vary from one to the other, obviously, but that's all, no binding. I hate binding them. And as he finishes setting up, the narration continues, right, let's see who's at home. You down there in the dark, second of the three, you know who I am, let's talk. And right here, I'll fill you guys in on some history in the DC universe. Right now, he's about to talk to one of the three kings of hell, specifically the second of the three. So Lucifer has lost full control of hell. I believe it was in Sandman when he does the battle with Morpheus. Because he loses that battle, that is when Lucifer has to give up some control to two other entities that are also powerful demons. So John summons the second king of hell. And of course, flames and everything come up. And the second king of hell says, John Constantine, one day we would meet. This I knew. Your reputation precedes you. Without ceremony, your ritual was, and quite audacious, therefore. And even though John's talking to a king of hell, he doesn't seem scared or impressed at all. Uh, he just says, I thought I'd cut out the mumbo jumbo, mate. This isn't some kid you're talking to. All that buggering about the knives and the names, it's just mystique for beginners as far as something with your clout's concerned, and you know it. And the second king responds, A morsel that speaks its mind, I like. I will gain from it. Find out, I shall. And then the second king does a scan of the area, I guess to make sure that it's not being tricked, and it says, Signs and sigils of protection and summoning. Nothing more. No task to bind me to? No enemies to die? Why am I called? And John says, business. And John's narration says, I talked for a while. I'm heard. I make an offer. I wait. Then, and then we hear the demon say, yes. And John's narration continues, I'm alone again. I better give it a minute or two before the next one. If they bump into each other, shit. If they even get a whiff of each other, the jig's up. I could use a moment or two to catch my breath. So John definitely has something up his sleeve. He's doing something where he's summoning multiple entities and making some sort of deal with them. So he waits a bit for that demon to leave so that he can summon the next one, and that way they won't know they're being played against each other. And in order to cover his tracks and make sure that none of the other demons notice that something's up, he has to get rid of all the old candles and gets rid of the pentagram on the floor and then redraws it and lights new candles. And the narration continues, Then I call the third of the three. This one's a shape changer. I mean, they all are, but this one enjoys it. Got quite an imagination too. And we don't see what this third king looks like, but apparently it's horrific because John's face looks completely terrified and shaken up. He's sweating and his face is just contorted in a scream almost. And the narration says, I fight back nausea as we talk and bargain and deal. The third one says yes, so all I have to do now is wait. But it's beginning to get a bit much. And that was something I shouldn't have looked at as closely as I did. And as for what's going to happen next. And then John goes over to his jacket pocket where he pulls out the whiskey that he took from Brendan's house, his buddy in Ireland, where he saved his friend's soul and pushed the devil into St. Patrick's well of holy water. 
and the narration says, it's Brennan's whiskey. What's left of it, anyway? It's strangely appropriate. One last drink. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you a toast. Here's to Brendan for a fine drop, and a kit for loving him as best she could. And here's to Emma and Zed and Marge and all the others. Good night, ladies. Here's to Ben and Frank and Richie and Gary and Anne-Marie and Judith, the whole sick crew. To Alec and Abby, to Chaz and Matt, to Ray, to Merck and Martin, to Cheryl and Gemma, to Dad, and to me, because I deserve a shot of whiskey at least, and because, well, I did it my way. And while he's thinking all that, he pounds the entire bottle of whiskey, and of course that hits him pretty hard, and he begins to lean against the wall to support himself, and the narration continues, the pain's building now. Little knives jab at my lungs. My heart beats faster like a machine gun. The candles are gone. The floor is clean. I'm ready as I'll ever be. It's time. And while John steadies himself against the wall, we see the box that he took from his other apartment. And when he opens it, we see that it's full of straight razors. And he takes one out and he looks at it kind of closely for a second. And then he puts it up to his wrist and he begins to slice down. And he yells out, Jesus Christ! And even being drunk, it seems like the pain of that was a lot because he falls to his knees and says, Jesus Christ again. And then the narration continues, even as I realize I'll be dead in five minutes, cancer or not, I feel him in the room with me. The first of the three is here. And we have met the first of the three before because that is the devil that John met at Brendan's house. And the way he is revealed is very, very cool. The first time we saw him a couple issues back, he was in like a dapper suit and he looked all proper and everything. But here, sections of him are revealed in panels, and the first one we see is his feet, and they are hanging down, one foot crossed in front of the other, and in the next panel we see his hands, and they're dripping blood, and he begins to talk to John, and he says, Suicide, Constantine? Not seeing it through to the bitter end? It doesn't matter, you're mine now, you always will be. The insult you dealt me with the holy water was immense, Constantine. I shall enjoy spending the rest of eternity with you. Look at me, Constantine. Look at my garb. I bring you damnation. And we still can't see him. He hasn't been revealed to us yet. But John looks up at him, and through all the pain, he's able to get out. Very nice, you son of a bitch. Aren't you supposed to wait till I die? And the first responds, I know you're dying, Constantine. And I want to watch. And that last line is said over a full-page spread of John kind of agonizingly in pain on the floor. And the first is floating in midair, and he looks very, very much like Jesus when he was on the cross. So he's basically in a mock Jesus Christ pose. And they don't say his name right here, but I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be Lucifer. But they just call him the first of the three kings of hell. So that is the end of the issue. If you guys have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at planestrainsandcomicbooks, all one word at gmail.com. And we will see y'all in the next one.